as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen. All right, we left off last week in chapter 8, having just begun. We went through verses 1 through 5, I think in some detail. So I simply want to skim over that to get us to give us the context necessary for today. So chapter 8, verse 1. When the Lamb opened the seventh seal, again, not to just beat into your minds the obvious, but we're, we're back in the throne room after the opening of the seals, the things that take place on earth. We're back in the throne room for this, the beginning of the, the next set of seven, the seven trumpets. So we will be always returning to this throne room to the Lamb who's at the center of all of Revelation. When the Lamb opens the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about half an hour. And I mentioned uh, that in some of the intertestamental literature, this half hour of silence precedes a creation narrative. So that may well be in view that with this silence, we're, uh, those in the first century in particular are tuning their ears to hear about a new creation being brought forth which makes some sense. Another option, given the connection to the golden uh, censer, the prayers of the saints that arise like incense and then the fire that's cast down upon the earth. Uh, Reardon has a comment on here that I think is interesting enough to share with you. He says, in the present text, the immediate response to the opening of the seventh seal is silence in heaven for 30 minutes, while the angels with the seven trumpets prepare themselves, and the throne room is ritually incensed. The silence that accompanies the incensing provides a time for prayers to be offered, the ascending of which is symbolized in the rising incense smoke. In the temple ritual of Israel, it is likely that 30 minutes was required for the priest to make the rounds of the temple with his censer, though it sometimes took longer. So, a little bit of interesting background and uh, detail as to how others have seen that silence for about a half an hour that takes place in heaven um, at the opening of the seventh seal before any of the action starts. Verse 2, then I saw the seven angels who stand before God. We talked at length last week about what their identities may or may not be. And the seven trumpets were given to them. And another angel, so this is an eighth angel, and he was given much incense to offer with the prayers of all the saints on the golden altar before the throne. So, I mean, we might... I might go out on a limb here and infer, and infer that God likes incense in worship. There it is in the heavenly worship. There it is in the heavenly throne room as part of the liturgy. He was given much incense to offer with the prayers of all the saints, and we talked about that last week, on the golden altar before the throne. And the smoke 
of the incense with the prayers of the saints rose before God from the hand of the angel. Then the angel took the censer and filled it with fire from the altar and threw it on the earth. And there were peals of thunder, rumblings, flashes of lightning, and an earthquake. And I mentioned right at the end of last week's session that the way the grammar works in terms of the pouring out of that uh, censer filled with fire, the prayers ascend and the fire descends, but the pouring out of that fire upon the earth is a continuous action that really goes on all the way through this, the successive blowing of the trumpets. So that's what you want to have in your mind's eye is he's pouring out the fire as each of the seven trumpets is going on and he finishes as the seventh trumpet finishes. The language of peals of thunder, rumblings, flashes of lightning, and an earthquake is all reminiscent of Sinai. And this is kind of one of the key threads that John has woven together here in his telling of the revelation of what it is he has seen. In fact, if you're looking for one of the, if you're looking for probably the major thread, it is the Exodus. What we're going to see upon the blowing of the trumpets are plagues brought forth. And the plagues are reminiscent of some of those that God put upon uh, the Egyptians in order to set free the Israelites. So then, this is our primary motif, but you actually have other motifs kind of interwoven. As I mentioned, creation, which of course, Exodus is the creation of God's people. And so you have a creation kind of you know, minor note. You also have... Uh, the idea of the falling of, of Jericho. Do you remember the seven trumpets that blast as the people are marching around Jericho, this impenetrable city, and the walls fall and God's people conquer? So then here the earth, the fallen earth, is pictured as a, as a Jericho that none can overcome, that none can conquer, but the Lord, through the blowing of these uh, seven trumpets, brings, uh, brings it down. So these are some of the Old Testament themes. You're going to see the language, the concepts, the imagery, uh, all, all here woven throughout. This is, uh, again, reared in on this point of the tr what the trumpets themselves represent, because we spend a lot of time, or at least I did, going through the, the scroll and the idea of the scroll being you know, literary, to be sure, liturgical, to be sure. It's the opening of the scroll. It's the opening of God's Word. And then also reality. It's simply as it's opened, reality takes place. It's got these threefold aspects. We should spend just a little bit of time talking about the trumpets themselves. So I'll let Reardon do that for us. The trumpets are best understood in two points of reference. First, there were seven trumpets sounded in the procession around the walls of Jericho in Joshua 6. It is useful to bear in mind that the Ark of the Covenant was born at the end of that procession, after the seven trumpets. Similarly, at the end of the sounding of the seventh trumpet in the book of Revelation, the Ark of the Covenant will once again appear. So that's a really cool thing uh, and definitely something that you know, John has in mind as he's penning this. Second, that event of the fall of Jericho was given a constant liturgical expression in the ritual of the Jerusalem temple, by the sounding of trumpets. Here you can go to 1 Chronicles 15, 24 or Nehemiah 12, verse 4 through 42. 
almost any time anything of significance happened in the worship at the temple, such as prayers, sacrifices, and so forth, the trumpets were sounded. Thus, the blare of the trumpet symbolizes Israel's constant and sustained worship of God. This is also the function of the trumpets here in Revelation 8. And then just uh, skipping ahead, he says, Finally, let us note that the plagues visited on the earth at the sounding of the trumpets here in Revelation, like the plagues visited on Egypt back in Exodus, do not touch those who, having been sealed, belong to God. All right, well, that gives us, that gives us I think, sufficient background to have these things in mind as we look then at the blowing of the seven trumpets. Now, the seven trumpets, this material is, to me, some of the hardest to work your mind around in terms of when people say that Revelation is a difficult book or hard to interpret, usually they mean all of it, which I kind of disagree with. I think it's been relatively clear up to this point. I mean, there's been a few things, to be sure. But it's, it's a section like this where, yeah, you kind of have to acknowledge and admit that this is a head-scratcher. In what way are we to really comprehend and, and understand this? So we'll simply talk through that. So verse 6, Now the seven angels who had the seven trumpets prepared to blow them. The first angel blew his trumpet, and there followed hail and fire mixed with blood. And these were thrown down upon the earth. And a third of the earth was burned up, and a third of the trees were burned up, and all green grass was burned up. So what are we looking at in the first, trump in the first trumpet? Well, we've got this hail and fire and blood, very reminiscent of plagues in the, uh, in the exodus that God does upon Egypt and Pharaoh now being done, whereas when the four horsemen come in the first set of seven, the damage done is a fourth, here the damage done is a third. And so we see a heightening of the intensity of the suffering. What we also saw in the first set of visions, uh, the opening of the scrolls, is that the four horsemen were precisely that, men on horses. And even in, the, even in the fifth seal, which is the martyrs under the throne, who is it that martyrs them? Men. And so in the first set of seven, the opening of the seals, we seem to see the wickedness of man upon man, that in our sinful state we are a curse upon ourselves. So you have the various human writers, you know, the, the first one being you know, representative generally of tyranny, followed by war and bloodshed, followed by uh, plague and famine, followed by death. And so in, in view in terms of the first lenses, what does this period of time up until the end look like if we kind of have human beings as our focus? Now what's going on here is different. We've shifted because now we see creation and the things of creation. We see creation turned against creation in a supernatural way. So here we might actually say, we see the curse. We see the curse. Human beings aren't involved directly in this first trumpet, nor will they be through the first four at least. And 
what we see is nature turned upon nature in a divine supernatural way, reminiscent of the curse. The difficulty in understanding this is how literally do you take it? How literally do you take it? That's the challenge. Um, I simply, I hold out a, just a very small sliver that there's going to come a time where we literally have to walk around with umbrellas to keep the blood from falling from the skies on us. I, I, I mean, while it's possible, I don't think it's likely. I don't think that that's the intention. I think that this is symbolic. I think that this is poetic of what's going on. Um, blood is, uh, you know, is, is symbolic of violence and death. And so what is God casting down? Hail, fire, which some take to be lightning, mixed with blood. I mean, this is, the, this is a picture and glimpse of the wrath of God poured out upon the earth. What struck is precisely the earth. A third of the earth is burned up, a third of the trees were burned up, and all green grass was burned up. An important detail to keep in mind, as you see why I say that these things are highly symbolic. Highly symbolic. All right, let's go on to the second. The second angel blew his trumpet, and something like a great mountain burning with fire. What does that sound like? A volcano. And... Uh, burning with fire, was thrown into the sea. Now, was thrown into the sea is kind of difficult, but it doesn't have to mean that the whole mountain just was like cast down from heaven into the sea. Um, It can certainly be viewed as a uh, volcanic explosion and the mountain thrusts itself or thrusts great parts of it. The mountain is thrown into the sea. So we'll talk about that um, in terms of, you know, again, what that, might, what that might mean historically and what it means symbolically. But just for now, the data itself. So a great mountain burning with fire was thrown into the sea, and a third of the sea became blood. It's di- very difficult to picture that if you're going to try to picture that literally, what that means. A third of the living creatures in the sea died, and a third of the ships were destroyed. So, whereas you have the first trumpet affecting the earth, the hail and fire are thrown upon the earth, the second trumpet affects the sea. The sea. And that's probably actually the most important part, at least, at least in terms of my reading. What you're, what you're seeing is the curse afflicts the earth, the curse afflicts the sea. Life is taken from the earth, life is taken from the sea. And I suppose to try to paint this concretely, my mind goes toward an observation that the church fathers have had throughout the centuries, that the earth is getting worse and worse and worse and deteriorating more and more and more. Um, For example, the earth is relatively barren now relative to what it once was, particularly if you consider Eden. We've come a long way. You could see the earth and the vegetation struck, as it were. Um, Same in terms of the waters, how they were teeming with fish and teeming with life. And you can look at the waters now, and whether it's due to overfishing or disasters or whatever else it may be, you can see the life in the sea and the life in the waters, the quality of water decreasing. Boy, that really hits home on us here in California, doesn't it? at the, uh, the quality of water decreasing as we sit here at the end of the, the pipe, as it were, needing to, what is it, what's, the langu- what's the sanitary language? Reconstitute the water? 
I don't know what it, but you get my point. So, this, so the earth is affected, the water is affected. All right, now 10 is even stranger and uh, even harder in some ways. The th- uh, verse 10, that is, the third angel. The third angel blew his trumpet, and a great star fell from heaven, blazing like a torch. What does that sound like? Meteor, meteor is that what you said? Meteorite. Yeah, yeah, meteorite, right, yeah. Um, something like that. The only pause here, as we're going to see, is that a star falling from heaven in just a few verses is also going to be an angel. So this is difficult. It's difficult. But again, it seems to be naturalistic when you take this in connection with the first two trumpets and then the fourth trumpet. And, and when you see these, fourth, these four first trumpets as a unit, it seems to make very clear sense that we ought to see here something like, a, you know. But I saw so much that, like, it's one meteorite or it's one asteroid or whatever. It's, um, I think it's more important to see that the heavens here are, are attacking the earth. In some respects, they're failing. A star is failing, okay? And the heavens are attacking the earth. So again, it's, it's curse imagery. Oh, I failed to mention... Sorry, there's just too much. In the, second, in the second blowing of the trumpet, I knew I should have. Um, the sea becoming blood, a third of the sea becoming blood. Of course, that's reminiscent of the Nile being t- turned to blood in Egypt. Remember all the water? So this, this plague motif continues. All right, then you have this star falling from heaven in the third trumpet, blazing like a torch, and it fell on a third of the rivers and on the springs of the water. Again, how can you take that literally? I don't think you can. The name of the star is Wormwood. Now, this again is difficult because it looks like a proper name. And if you have a great star falling from heaven, you'll see what I mean when we get down to the fifth trumpet. It really parallels and tracks with this being something angelic. But again, in the context of the first four trumpets, it's probably naturalistic. But this just is one of the very difficult parts in reading and understanding this on any level. Now, wormwood means bitterness, and so what you see then is a third of the waters became wormwood, bitter, and many people died from the water because it had been made bitter. So the earth's attacked, the sea's attacked, and the fresh water is attacked. That might be a a simple way of putting it. Okay, on to the fourth angel. The fourth angel blew his trumpet, and a third of the sun was struck, and a third of the moon, and a third of the stars, so that a third of their light might be darkened, and a third of the day might be kept from shining, and likewise a third of the night. Now, when people try to point to something concrete, they might talk about when you look up at the sky around a city and you can't see it, but that's way more than a third that you can't see. (laughs) Here in California, you look up and you see about three stars total on any given night. Um, So again, this really defies a literal or naturalistic explanation, particularly um, its effects upon the sun and the moon and this idea of a third. Again, we've seen a third all the way through, so it's ramping up from the first. Uh, series, the first uh, seven seals, now the seven trumpets, it's ramping up. But again, naturalistic. 
seems to be the theme. Um, the, the supernatural darkness, again, reminiscent of the plague, of one of the plagues in uh, Egypt. So that's what we have. It's really tricky. It's really tricky. Let me give you, let me give you just a little bit of commentary here so that, uh, so that we've got a little more rich sense, perhaps, of what's going on. Okay, not there. All right, just by way of overview, Brighton says, At the sound of the first trumpet, hail and fire, both having been mixed in blood, were poured out upon the earth. In Exodus 9, a plague of hail struck the land of Egypt. Skipping ahead, in Sibylline oracles, the imagery of fire and blood falling on people like rain from heaven symbolizes the destruction of warfare on the land and people. Whether one interprets the hail and fire mixed with blood as a natural phenomenon of the elements or as a symbol of the horrors of warfare on the land, the devastation to the earth with its foliage of plants and trees and grasses is catastrophic. One third of the earth's vegetation is burned and ruined. A third suggests partial, but not total, destruction. Okay, so in regard to the second trumpet angel, Brighton says, the second trumpet angel introduces a scene in which John sees a gigantic mountain burning with fire that, quote, was cast into the sea, end quote. Perhaps it can be imagined as a huge ball of fire being thrown into the bodies of water. Because of this plague, a third of the seas become blood, and as a result, a third of the sea's creatures perish, and a third of the ships are destroyed. That is, a third of man's commercial activity, as well as human life, is affected. This is somewhat reminiscent of the first plague that struck ancient Egypt, the plague of blood. All the rivers and bodies of water in Egypt were turned into blood, fish died, and the water could not be used for drinking. Brighton continues, As John later meditated on what he had seen here in Revelation 8, 8, and 9, did he think of some movements among the volcanic islands in the Aegean, with which he was most likely familiar? or even the uh, volcanic eruption of Mount Vesuvius, which devastated the Bay of Naples in A.D. 79, question mark, etc., etc. So again, just speculating, you know, speculating. We don't know other than devastation, wrath from heaven. Third trumpet. With the blowing of the third trumpet, John sees a burning star described as a great meteor flashing across the sky like a blazing torch. It strikes the rivers and springs, that is, the bodies of fresh water. As a result, the fresh waters of the earth are embittered and made unfit to drink, perhaps even poisoned, so that people die from drinking their water. From heaven suggests not only the star's place of natural origin, but also metaphorically the origin of the judgment which the star represents. The judgment is from God, and the star falling from heaven signals God's involvement in the sending of the plagues, just as was the case with the plagues of Egypt. The falling star is given the name Wormwood, in the Old Testament, it's often trans. Uh, it's often a, used for a word like used as a word for a kind of bitter poison. 
As a divine punishment, it represents sorrow and bitterness in the human heart. Various biblical references given. The prophet is told that the Lord God has given the people wormwood to eat and poisoned water to drink because they had sinned against him. All right, fourth trumpet, and then we'll be done for a a spell with Brighton. At the sound of the fourth trumpet, a third part of the heavenly bodies is struck, so much so that the sun, moon, and stars are not able to give their full light and brightness to the earth. This causes a third part of the day and night to be darkened. In the ninth plague that struck ancient Egypt, a darkness came over the whole land, a total darkness for three days. Here in Revelation 8.12, the darkness is not total, nor is there a time limit, for this partial darkness lasts throughout the period of Revelation's prophecy from Christ's ascension to his return. It is difficult to relate this partial darkness to human experience. For as another commentator says, by this partial eclipse of the lights of heaven, a partial darkness would obviously produce, be produced, but not a shortening of the duration of daylight and moonlight and starlight. Skipping forward a little bit, Brighton says, could it be that throughout the time period that Revelation covers clouds and smog and pollution of the atmosphere will so cover the earth that it will be increasingly difficult for the light of the heavenly bodies to penetrate. Throughout the, uh, throughout the Bible, darkness is often used as a metaphor for human sin and wickedness and for God's judgment in contradistinction to light, which symbolizes God and purity and holiness uh, he would graciously give to mankind. Okay, so... Yeah, now you know as much as the experts, which isn't really a lot. I think the message is plain enough, though, isn't it? I mean, judgment upon, God's judgment upon creation. So, you see God's judgment upon mankind and mankind afflicting itself in the first seven, that's a predominant theme, and here in the second set of seven, a predominant theme is the destruction of creation. Um, now, all of this is done for the purpose of causing man to repent. And we gain that perspective, especially if we remember the connection to the plagues that God put upon Egypt. That was so that Pharaoh would repent and let his people go. And so, too, the plagues are put by God upon this world that they might repent and be led out by Jesus in his exodus. Uh, the exodus that goes through the very heart of death and into the new heavens and the new earth, as we'll see. And, of course, we reflect, too, on these trumpets. This is God conquering the wicked world. So, is this really properly to fill Christian hearts with fear and foreboding? No, not really. It might, upon immediately reading it, it's horrific, it sounds scary, but when you realize that this is God's judgment upon our enemies, not so scary. When you realize that you're on God's side and live or die, you live with the Lord, not that scary. So again, I think that this is given to us so that even as we, we as Christians, we as a church throughout the ages, see these things happening, we don't fear. We say, this is exactly uh, what God said it would be. He's in control of this, and this is for his good purposes. Yes, uh, we need to, do we have a microphone? We want to use that for the benefit of those online. And that way I don't have to try to repeat your question or comment and mess it up. 
um, is there any connection? Uh, the one third of the angels, the fallen fallen angels, with this third part of the. Yeah, that's a good question. So what you what you see here in it's the fourth angel, isn't it? The fourth trumpet. A third of the stars um, are said to be struck. And later in Revelation 12, we're told that the dragon sweeps a third of the stars down with his tail. There, see, it's really tempting. I don't think so. I don't think so is the short answer. But it's really tempting. Uh, Of these first four trumpets, the weirdest one is, um, well, the weirdest two, if you read them in connection, are the third and fourth. The weirdest one is the third because of it being a star that falls from heaven and it being called a name, Wormwood. We're going to see that in chapter 9, why, that, why that's strange. And then the connection with the fourth trumpet, that a third of the stars, I don't know. There's, there's some connection there, but generally speaking, because of the other thematic elements, commentators steer away from that. They're, they're inclined to see naturalistic things going on here as opposed to you know, supernatural things. Uh, in, in the sense of angels and fallen angels. Because that's, I mean, maybe there are those themes in a sense, because that's certainly coming in the fifth and, and sixth uh, trumpets. We'll take a look at that in a minute. Yes, yes. Yeah, Pastor, uh, the one thing that I was thinking about was um, when the Egyptians were faced with the plague of blood on, in the water, uh, some commentators have talked about that being the death of the Nile god. And so you have some sort of heavenly battle going on that the Egyptians are paying for. And I'm wondering if that isn't something similar to what's happening here. In other words, there's something going on in heaven, and so it's coming down on earth. Mm. Um, That might be the connection. Yeah, well, I thank you for that. It certainly is an important data point to keep in mind as we try to sort through these things, because... That is, a, that is a common thematic element in Revelation. I, I think, you know, very clearly Revelation 12 shows that, shows the interconnectedness. I mean, as does the cross itself being a victory over the principalities and powers of darkness. What happens on earth affects what's in heaven. What happens in heaven affects what's on earth. There's an interconnection there. All right, well, that's the first four trumpets. Now, we've got another oddity. Another strange event. Again, like I said at the beginning, chapters 8, 9, 10, (laughs) and yeah, most of 11. These are all weird. These are all strange. These are hard to wrap your mind around. And there's not a lot of parallels. There's not a lot of stuff to draw on so that we can say definitively, okay, this is exactly what it means or what's going on. Verse 13 There's a reprieve between these four, which again increases the likelihood that these four ought to be seen as a unit, and then the final final trumpets ought to be seen as a unit. So verse 13, Then I looked, and I heard an eagle. This may also be a vulture, crying with a loud voice as it flew directly overhead, and directly overhead is sort of like um, the language is... The sun at noonday, just straight ahead. So, like, like if you look overhead, like between heaven and earth, that's where the eagle or the uh, buzzard, the vulture, is flying. 
Woe, woe, woe to those who dwell on the earth at the blasts of the other trumpets that the three angels are about to blow. Okay, so what that seems to indicate, at least from a literary standpoint, is a, the- is a thematic shift. That the first four ought to be seen as a unit and the last three ought to be seen as a unit. There's three trumpets. The eagle cries out, woe, 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 threefold woe. And this, and this woe is exceedingly intense and really, really depicts the intensity of what's coming next. And um, that's exactly right. We'll see that just right in, the next, uh, right in the next verse. I didn't find that Brighton has anything particularly interesting about the... He just says, he just says this. Together with the plagues of the first three trumpet angels, um, this partial darkness, this fourth plague, anticipates the transition from divine warnings by way of natural disasters to demonic woes. To demonic woes. The eagle is the only earthly creature in Revelation which God uses to speak a word. In all other instances where God speaks, he does so through an intermediary, an angel speaks. Okay, so that's the shift then um, that most commentators go with, Brighton included, uh, that, that, we are, that the eagle is predominantly there to give a shift between the destruction of the earth, the natural disasters under the curse, uh, to demonic affliction in the last three woes. Good enough to go ahead, or I mean, if there's any questions there, I don't know exactly what I would even answer. It's kind of all. It's kind of all we have. Okay, so chapter nine, verse one. And the fifth angel blew his trumpet, and I saw a star fallen from heaven to earth, and he was given the key to the shaft of the bottomless pit. He opened the shaft of the bottomless pit. This language, bottomless pit, is used all over uh, biblical and extra-biblical literature for hell. That's the way we'd understand it, for hell. So the bottomless pit, um, he opened the shaft of the bottomless pit, and from the shaft rose smoke like the smoke of a great furnace. And the sun and the air were darkened with the smoke from the shaft. Then from the smoke came locusts on the earth, and they were given power like the power of of scorpions of the earth. Okay, so what comes out of this bottomless pit where there's smoke and a great furnace, this hellish picture, is, you know, what's, what's being symbolized here is this fallen star is given the key. Now, that's, that's the idea of, I mean, God, the powers of heaven, God is allowing this to happen. He's giving him the authority to do this. He's opening hell, and what comes out of hell are these demonic powers described uh, as locusts on the earth, but as we're going to see, they're not going to devour or afflict vegetation. They're going to devour and afflict unbelievers. 
And not only are they regular locusts, but they're given power like the power of the scorpions of the earth, which is to sting and to kill, of course. So then verse 4, they were told... So again, look at the language. They were told not to harm the grass of the earth or any green plant or any tree, but only those people who do not have the seal of God on their foreheads. So who is it? I mean, if God is protecting those who are sealed with his name on their foreheads, then who is telling them that they can afflict these things? God. And I think that that is probably, probably the most important point for Christians to draw out of these texts, that even the key, even the allowance of, these, of this spiritual affliction is, is given by God and is going to be used for his good purposes. And so, too, the exact... Um, amount of, of which they're going to be able to afflict people or not afflict people is dictated and given by God. So Luther has this famous line that even the devil is the, still the God's devil. Even in all his evil and wickedness and fighting against God, he's still most definitely God's employee. And God's just going to use whatever evil he does exactly in accord with God's sovereign purposes. And so in the end, it, it profits him nothing. Um, and that you certainly see that kind, of, that kind of theology and sentiment going on here. All right. So these evil spiritual beings that come out of the pits of hell cannot afflict, cannot afflict those people who, do not, uh, uh, who have the seal of God on their foreheads. So they cannot afflict Christians. So these are the demonic powers afflicting those who are un unbaptized, unbelieving people who don't have the seal of God upon their forehead. We talked earlier back in chapter 7 um, with the sealing of the 144,000. And yeah, yeah, chapter 7. And that sealing being a, a reference to baptism. So, I mean, obviously baptized believers in view. So baptized believers are not subject to this affliction. All right, verse 5, they were allowed to torment them. They, that is these demonic locusts, were allowed to torment the unbelievers for five months. Everybody says that, I mean, nobody knows what to do exactly with five months other than it's the lifespan, it's the lifespan, the average lifespan of locusts. So that's where they think they get it. Um, in terms of, I mean, this is a, a substantial but not lengthy kind of affliction in terms of the overall use of numbers in Revelation. But they were allowed to torment them for five months. Again, look at the language. They were allowed to. See, God is thoroughly in control of this. And their torment was like the torment of a scorpion when it stings someone. And in those days, people will seek death and will not find it. They will long to die, but death will flee from them. Again, this is chiefly a spiritual condition, chiefly a spiritual affliction. So people will, uh, people will be hurting so badly, spiritually speaking, that they long to die, but death will flee from them. I, I think it's interesting, just in the tumult of our nation, anecdotally, how you know, everyone's, everyone's deeply spiritually hurt and wounded, right? And thus aggrieved and thus justified in whatever it is that they want to carry out. So anecdotally, I think that that is an interesting parallel, an interesting parallel. 
All right, verse 7. In appearance, the locusts were like horses prepared for battle. Now, this is when our evangelical friends go off the rails. They think we're seeing like helicopters here. I think the, lo- the latest was drones. Who knows what else they'll have next. Um, but what's really being depicted here symbolically is these locusts aren't regular locusts, obviously. They're afflicting people, not crops. And the locusts were like horses prepared for battle. That is to say, we're to see this as an organized assault, a demonic and hellish assault upon people. So military imagery. On their heads were what looked like crowns of gold. Brighton makes the comment that the other place where you see crowns are are the heavenly beings who are casting their crowns down before God. Here with these, they have their crowns firmly in place. You know, we we rule what we rule. We have the authority that we've been given, and we're going to exercise that. Um, Obviously, this being the army of hell is contrary to God, and God is using it for his own purposes. All right, their uh, heads were what looked, on their heads were what looked like crowns of gold. Their faces were like human faces. It's kind of a disgusting picture you get here. Their hair like women's hair, and their teeth like lion's teeth. Not exactly the kind of creature you'd like want to run into in a dark alley or something. They had breastplates, again back to the, uh, well, I can point out a few things. I can point out a few things. Their faces are like human faces. The, the principalities and powers of darkness um, present themselves to us in very human ways. Very human ways. In fact, beautiful ways. That's like the hair of, of the woman, um, like the glory of the woman. Like they're trying to appear attract. They're trying to appear human. They're trying to appear attractive, and then their teeth are like lion's teeth. Their damage comes from their mouths. In other words, symbolic for what they say. So you, you can see then here. I mean, not only a grotesque picture just for the sake of being grotesque, but the imagery and symbolism is that the powers of darkness relate to us in very human ways, and uh, they attempt to make themselves beautiful, and the damage they do is from their mouths, is from their speaking. So this is like, I mean, this is just all the, all the lying and deceiving uh, of, of the world. This is all the people taken in and under the, you know, the, the kingdom of the evil one, manipulated by these armies of hell. Behind them, are these armies of hell. We war not with flesh and blood, but precisely with these armies. All right, um, what else, what else? Breastplates like breastplates of iron. Uh, more military imagery. And the noise of their wings was like the noise of many chariots with horses rushing into battle. Again, the theme of violence and bloodshed. So it's not just spiritual torment, like, you know, everybody gets a little melancholy or a little angst of the soul or something, but this is a spiritual torment that um, ends up in, in, you know, violence and bloodshed. They have tails and stings like scorpions, and their power to hurt people for five months is in their tails. Again, five months is the lifespan. 
and just as a scorpion hurts in their tail. Um, it's, a bit, it's a bit hard to interpret that to know exactly what's meant there. Eleven, they have as king over them the angel of the bottomless a pit, the bottomless pit. His name in Hebrew is Abaddon, and in Greek he is called Apollyon. The first woe has passed. Behold, two woes are still to come. Um, Brighton, I believe, identifies Abaddon as Satan because he's the king. They have as king over them the angel of the bottomless pit, effectively the, the king of hell, Satan. So there, that's probably right. There is a possibility that this would be another angel mentioned. There is that possibility. Um, let me look at Reardon quick because he's got something interesting on this point. Okay, they are satanic locusts, denizens of the abyss, who afflict men with despair. They deceptively have human faces, but they represent a worse than human evil. Their king is called Abaddon. Then he gives the Hebrew, which is the Old Testament's personification of the underworld or grave. It literally means destruction. Okay, so what, what Reardon sees here is not so much hell, but the personification of death. Um, but here, I think, is the more interesting thing to, to have in mind. It was possible that John intends here a wordplay on the name Apollo. You see how he's Apollyon there at the end in Greek? A wordplay on the name Apollo, which name, according to Aeschylus, comes from the verb apulain, to destroy. We may bear in mind in this respect that the emperor Domitian not a man easily outdone, it must be said, with respect to high self-opinion, proclaimed himself a manifestation of Apollo. There is simply no evil as evil as official government-sanctioned evil. The torture inflicted by these followers of Abaddon is spiritual, not physical, and the Christians sealed with the sign of the living God are exempt from it. All right, well... So there you, have, there you have a possibility of a historical figure um, that John may or may not be referencing. Pastor? Yes. What was that one line that you just read, that there's no evil like the evil of a government sanction? I yeah. don't know. That, that one just, for some reason, jumped out at me. Yeah, right. Well, I think... Like something that happened like five months ago or so? <laughs> I don't know. Just, just... Yeah, right. Right. Yeah, government-sanctioned evil. Well... I mean, for those bereft of any understanding of history, it's like before you even get into the why something why a system like communism is even inherently wrong, you know why it's inherently immoral and sinful. You can just go with what Jesus says: you will know them by their fruits, and their their fruits are, I mean, mass murder and holocaust and uh, absolute torture of Christians and others. It, that's communism, everywhere everywhere it pops up. I mean, there's no such thing as a Christian communist. And the cry is always like, hey, well, let's try it again. This time it'll work. Yeah, okay. Sign me up for that. Um, no, I think, I, on a, well, I don't know. Now, it's, now I'm veering into the political, but if, if communism were to become the, the government or the law of the land, 
I think Christians would do well to, to, to fight it to the point of it would be better to be dead than be under communist control, be put in their camps. Like it would, it would literally be better to take up arms, whatever that might be for you in your house, and die in, in fight than it would to be to die in their, under their tortures. But that's, yeah, unfortunately, that's where we are. Everybody thinks it's a game, or at least the younger generation thinks it's a game, and it's certainly not. Government-sanctioned evil, of course, takes many forms. You see that throughout the history of the world, you know, in all parts, and then in all forms of government, too. Uh, so, yeah, thank you, for, thank you for bringing that to mind. <laughs> it's rather depressing. <laughs> okay, well... Yeah, I mean, this is horrific. It's, it's, it's a spiritual attack, and... It's a spiritual kind of warfare that goes on. The point here, not to, not to lose the forest for the trees, is that if we have been marked with the seal of God upon our foreheads, then we don't need to fear this. I mean, they can't directly afflict and affect us. If we see those that are afflicted and affected by this, our response to them should be, believe and be baptized. Receive the seal of God upon your forehead that you can be spared this. So that's, uh, that's the first woe. Now then we go into the sixth angel. And you know what? We've got two minutes left. We had probably just uh, better stop there. Let's do the sixth angel and the sixth trumpet uh, next week. And if these trumpets have, you know, got you down, both in terms of the content and the difficulty understanding what they are, it does, it does, we have this beautiful interlude, just like we did back in the opening of the seals between the sixth and the seventh. You have this beautiful interlude of the church. You have some beauty in an upcoming interlude between the sixth and the seventh trumpets. All right. The Lord be with you. <laughs>